0: The 2018 campfire was the most destructive wildfire in California's history. The death toll jumping at California's most destructive fire ever. By the time the smoke cleared, more than 150,000 acres had burned. Damages surpassed 16 billion. Dozens had died, and thousands more were displaced. The images are ghastly. Homes turned to rubble, cars charred for miles empty gurneys snaking outside the local hospital. This is what's left of the cardiology unit. You can see twisted steel and debris. There's really not much left. And the question that hung in the air was, how could this have happened? Turns out it started with a windy November morning and an old transmission
1: line hook. It was about 100 years old, the equipment. I hadn't been replaced since it was installed around, you know, 1907, 1908, roughly, And when that hook broke, it dropped a live wire that swung against the metal tower. Uh, Sparks flew, settled in the brush beneath the, the tower, and I mean, it was completely out of control almost immediately.
0: The increasingly hot and dry conditions in the region, coupled with the high Diablo winds, turned the forest floor into a literal powder keg. And within hours, thousands of homes had been destroyed in Butte County and the surrounding areas.
1: Uh, 84 people died. There was an uh, 85th individual who died by suicide as the flames approached. It was just an absolutely heart-rending disaster.
0: Paradise looks like a war zone. Catherine Blunt was just a few days into her new role as a reporter covering renewable energy and utilities for the Wall Street Journal when the fire blew up.
1: Uh, My job is to really monitor trends in this very dynamic corner of the energy industry. Uh, You know, we all use electricity. Uh, We all rely on utilities to some degree. And uh, I do my very best to try to explain how that world is changing, what it means for the companies that provide electricity and, and those who use it.
0: For Pacific Gas and Electric, or PG&E, the utility responsible for the equipment that started the blaze, the months following sent the company into a legal and financial tailspin. The liabilities alone were estimated at $30 billion, with victims of the fire eventually settling for $13.5 billion. Then, in January 2019, PG&E filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy due to the mounting costs from this and other accidents from years prior.
1: The stakes were so high for this company, not just from a financial standpoint, but from a from a legal standpoint, I mean, it became the pretty much the only thing that I was focused on. And it was enormously challenging.
0: What came after wasn't just an overhaul to PG&E's operations, but a reckoning for all utilities.
1: Some smart utilities are trying to take a close look at how climate change is going to affect their ability to operate. You know, it's one thing to study it. It's another thing to kind of have an effective plan that's going to address these risks, especially given some of the uncertainties around what a change in climate really is going to mean.
0: This is With Great Power, a show about the people building the future grid today. I'm Brad Langley. Some people say utilities are slow to change, they don't innovate fast enough. And while it might not always seem like the most cutting edge industry, there are lots of people working really hard to make the grid cleaner, more reliable and customer centric. This week, I'm speaking with Catherine Blunt, a reporter for The Wall Street Journal and author of the book California Burning, The Fall of Pacific Gas and Electric and What It Means for America's Power Grid. After reporting on the campfire and its ramifications for the local community and PG&E, Catherine chronicled what it all means for the utility industry.
1: Historically, it's an industry that's been very backward-looking in the way that it makes decisions, kind of assuming that you know, the past is a good predictor of the future. And that might have been true for a time, but it's, that, that notion's really starting to break down. And so I think at the board level at many companies, this is becoming a bigger part of the conversation, as it should.
0: I talked with Catherine about how the PG&E saga impacted the utility business and the role journalism plays in demystifying the energy transition. Catherine has reported for the San Antonio Express News, the Houston Chronicle, and now the Wall Street Journal. She has covered both Texas and California in deep detail. So I started by asking her about the contrast between those two states. Oh,
1: very. they're very, very different. So, um, you know, Texas has the most competitive electricity market in the country, and it's also really an island. Unto itself, <laughs> not subject to the same sort of federal oversight as as um, other power markets, and it's been very interesting to see the last twenty years. You know, wind and solar have become extremely competitive in Texas because, or they've become you know some of the cheapest forms of generation out there, and the the market rewards the lowest cost generators. So Texas has an enormous amount of renewable energy as a result, um, but not for any you know really specific policy reasons like you see in California. California was. Among the first states to have really aggressive renewable energy procurement targets, and the utility companies within the state were tasked with um, you know going out and contracting for for wind and solar uh, with with um, with developers and began doing so at a time when when these um, power sources were much more expensive. So you know the utility companies in California have spent a huge amount of money helping California secure that place as a leader in renewable energy. And, um, you know, if we're talking about PGE, and it is really it's a little bit of an unfortunate irony that in contracting for this uh, wind and solar power, especially early on, the company was spending billions of dollars on these contracts, creating certain cost pressures within the company that were part of the reason why you did see a concerted effort to minimize inspection and maintenance costs. So you kind of, you know, you have something that's aimed at kind of longer term climate change mitigation, I mean, th- the company isn't confronting in the right way as its power lines are deteriorating. And so, yeah, it's, it, it's very in- interesting dynamics in California and the way the legislature has used utilities to help um, meet certain policy targets.
0: Now that you've been covering these really important stories for quite some time have you know, great understanding of the energy industry, you know, what do you see as some of the major resiliency challenges facing the utilities and the grid nationwide today?
1: Uh, there's there's three major challenges as I see it. For one, the grid is very old. I mean, there are certain components that, I mean, is kind of, a, you know, probably original equipment from like the 1910s and 1920s. It's, I mean, it's amazing in some when you think about it, that some of it's still, still functioning in the way that it is. So there needs to be a lot of uh, upgrades done to replace aging equipment that's becoming more prone to failure. The second major challenge is the fact that, as you know, we've been talking about, the climate is changing. New risks are emerging. And you know more severe weather events have the potential to put additional strain on this aging system. And then I think the third major challenge is the managing the pace of the energy transition as you know power plants fueled with gas or or coal go offline, making sure that they're it, that's it's being replaced by you know wind and solar and and, and battery storage to to firm it up uh, or you know other uh, clean energy resources that that can be used around the clock and there's such fragmented oversight of this process. It's kind of at the state level. It's kind of at the federal level, kind of at the market level. And I think that m- managing that in all regions effectively is already emerging as a really big challenge and is only going to continue to get more challenging. It's part of the reason why we've seen some of these kind of reliability scares, um, you know, the prospect of um, electricity demand exceeding supply, especially on days in which it's you know, really hot or really cold. I think that that's very consequential because even if you have the need for, you know, some rotating outages to keep that balance, it really has the potential to sour public sentiment on the energy transition. And I think that um, you know, power suppliers um, should be paying close attention to this.
0: What was the aftermath like for PG&E? What, how has this changed the way they do business and how are they faring today?
1: PG&E after the campfire, faced an estimated $30 billion in liability costs. Huge sum of money. Uh, this was money owed to fire victims, uh, businesses, insurance companies, a whole gamut of claimants. And so through the bankruptcy process, they had to reach settlements with each of these groups. The company has knows it has an enormous amount of work to do, um, both in just keeping you know, trees away from lines, making sure they're doing proper inspections. They have a new plan in which they want to underground a substantial number of, of distribution wires because if the wires are underground, they can't start wildfires, but that's hugely expensive. And with access to capital constrained, there's a real question about how they're going to be able to really effectively execute this work over the next few years. It's a, it's, it's, so you know if there's a, anything that is good that comes out of this, PG&E has never been more aware of the risk but huge challenges remain in its ability to to, uh, to address them.
0: Are utilities moving fast enough to harden the grid and reduce exposure to extreme weather events?
1: Well, they're certainly spending a lot of money or proposing to spend a lot of money. Um, you know, how effectively they're doing it kind of varies company by company. But uh, it's tough, though, because we, we've moved into an era in which um, – you know, gas prices are no longer as low as they once were. I mean, it was a real benefit for utilities for a long time that that fuel cost was pretty low. And now, as that cost is passed through to consumers and you see, you know, you, uh, they're really feeling an increase in um, what they're spending on on power generally, whether they I mean that gas or, or electricity. And uh, it makes it more challenging to propose these huge capital improvement projects. And, uh, it's just – it's definitely something to keep an eye on as to, um, you know, how what regulators are going to do about this because that's really what it comes down to.
0: So, what would need to be true for them to move faster? Obviously, they're investing tons of capital. I mean, is it just, you know, people plus capital? Is it people plus capital plus the right regulations? I mean, what needs to be true for, for us to be more successful in moving this along quicker?
1: Yes, Yes, and um unraveling the supply chain issues. <laughs> um, that's been I mean it's been a problem since COVID, right? I mean there's there's uh, all kinds of things we've gotten caught up in the the general supply chain challenges that we face. And um, you know, this isn't so much hardening the grid per se, but in terms of bringing new resources online, the interconnection queues across the country are just a total mess. it's It's really hard to um, move projects along any more quickly than than they are now. So, um, I mean, that's a resources issue. Um, that's kind of a market design issue in some ways. Um, and uh, I think a lot of people are thinking about it. But, um, you know, unfortunately, I mean, everything moves pretty slowly in the electricity space. Um, so it's uh, it's hard to speed things up, but at least folks are trying.
0: What ways have you seen media coverage around these issues evolve over the years?
1: Well, I think that there's certainly a higher volume of coverage um, it, it's a space that there was, I mean, there was more limited interest for a long time. A lot of energy focus was on, you know, for a long time, the big oil producers or, you know, the gas producers who were leading the fracking boom in West Texas, for example. Um, it's been interesting in the, in the five share sure, you know, four plus years I've been at the journal when I started, I was really the only person tasked with covering power in the U S and now we have more people covering power and also just the interest across the organization has grown exponentially. And we have a lot of calls across um, calls with different teams in which we're trying to figure out ways we can all put our heads together and think creatively about the, the way we we're covering the space. And those conversations were not happening when, when I joined, not in the same way. And I think it's, you know, it's just reflective of a growing recognition that the power space is very important the utility space is very important, and people are thinking about the grid and their electricity provider in, in a way that they haven't historically. That's um, not to say they understand it better, <laughs> but but people are, are thinking about um, power in, in ways that they haven't before.
0: Do you think climate change is driving a lot of that or increased recognition that climate change is having an impact on how utilities deliver clean, safe, reliable power?
1: I think that's part of it. And, you know, relatedly, the energy transition. Is, is driving a lot of it. No matter how you, you feel about it, you you know that it's happening and it's be increasingly becoming part of the political conversation.
0: How were you, Russell and Rebecca, perceived within PG&E as you guys were writing these stories? Were they giving you access? Were they trying to stonewall you a little bit? Combination of the two?
1: It was I mean, it was certainly difficult in the sense that pg e was going through such a period of crisis that it was... Um, difficult to get certain people on the phone for sure, but you know we were always very we always were very straight with them and and telling them you know exactly what we planned to report and gave them the opportunity to respond to you know every every bit of it so it 's very much a practice within the journal we call it no surprises journalism and you know, pg e always engaged before these these stories came out and and um, you know did their best to to answer questions and to make available. Um, the subject matter experts who could kind of weigh in on on what it is we were planning to report did not love the story. Some of the stories were pretty tough, you know, and um, and I, I don't it was certainly not an enjoyable experience for them when they came out, but you know, I have, I have a lot of respect for the way the company handled things internally. I think the general perception at the time was it was fair and accurate. There was one story they really didn't like, but you know that that was a while ago, and it was a really, really challenging period. What's been heartening for me actually is that, you know, the company's under new leadership and, um, uh, the new CEO made the, the book required reading for senior leaders. There was a, you know, she said that she thought it was uh, fair and accurate. And that's generally been the consensus that I've, I've heard from, from other people as well. Um, which I'm happy to say.
0: Yeah. Patty's fantastic. I've talked to her before and I think she's the right person to be leading pg e right now. Um, How about the impact on you and your team? I imagine, obviously, writing a ton during a very difficult time, but I'm sure it required site visits to places like Paradise, talking with victims. What type of impact did it have on on you as you were writing these stories in the book?
1: Yeah, you know, at the Journal, um, we were really focused on this story from a business standpoint and what it meant for this enormous investor-owned utility. That's not to say that we didn't focus at all on... Fire victims, but it was it was. I mean, it was less of a focus at the journal. It was really about the the effect on this company, and of course, with the book, there's much greater opportunity to explore some of these stories and and the human impact of these these um, tragedies. And it's it's tough. You know, there's one fire victim in particular who I whose kind of story I um, you know explain in the book because he really tried to become involved in the bankruptcy process and other other uh, proceedings that were going to determine the future of PG&E. And, you know, his, his house burned down in, in 2017 um, up in the, during one of the big wine country fires and lost everything. You know, I had to f- flee with his um, family, his really young kids, um, and, you know, drive through the flames. And they were lucky enough to escape, but, you know, returned to find everything they owned completely destroyed. Just having to sit with someone and walk through that in such detail and then to continue to go over it again and again— for something like this in the book and making sure you're getting everything right. I mean, that's hard for everybody, right? It's hard for him. It's hard for me. And just there are certain details that really uh, affected me, like the, the fact that as they were fleeing the fire and then they were in the car, I mean, his, his nine-year-old son is, is just heartbroken that he'd forgotten to save the teddy bear that had been in the family for forever. And then just that, that's what a nine-year-old kid is thinking about is they're you know, faced with the real prospect of like death right then. And that was that was that was hard to write, and I, you know, it's kind of having to be nice to yourself and, and take breaks. But I mean, it was <laughs> it was hard for me. I mean, I can't imagine what it was like for them.
0: I I kept wanting Will Abrams to be a hero in this story, not to say he he wasn't, but the the effort he made to intervene himself in those bankruptcy proceedings. And it seemed like every time they were just like, "You don't belong here. Thank you for your perspective. We're moving on to to this," and it just was. I don't know, it felt to me a little bit of a view into kind of how the fire victims didn't really have the strongest seat at the table, at least individually. Um, and so I respect everything that he did to try and insert uh, that representation, but it's just like he was rebuffed at most every turn because the machine just had to roll on.
1: Yeah, yeah. And um, that's really, uh, I think, the takeaway from his story. And I mean, he's kind of an amazingly persistent person and unique in the fact that he tried time and time again to draw attention to uh, the fire victim's plight, so to speak. And, I mean, you're right. I, I don't think that they had the strongest seat at the table individually or otherwise. Um, there was a lot of competing interests in this case, a lot of moneyed interests, and ultimately those interests won out. And it was kind of remarkable to have somebody who was so consistently appearing at these you know, various proceedings and really making the same point, which, you know— you know, so Abrams is is continuing to kind of be like trying to draw attention to the fire victims, making sure the fire victims get fair treatment, but also saying like, you know, if we're talking about restructuring this company, like what are we what are we talking about in terms of safety and the fact that these we will not want these fires to happen again? It's really not the place for that. Like, it's just not bankruptcy court's not structured in that way. But if you take a step back, I mean, the point is very valid, and it's just like I think it was kind of a, a good metaphor for. Really, what was going on as these really complicated proceedings were, were going on, and put a, put a you know bit of a human face on stuff that is just so complicated.
0: What what impact do you want your reporting to have on the power industry?
1: I guess uh, you know, kind of a two part answer to that. I think that it's hard for any employee, any company, to have a holistic view of what's happened <laughs> over the you know any long span of time, right? I mean, like, so, I mean, any of us in our positions, I mean, we, we work, um, can we have pretty narrow remits, right? And, um, you know, I mean, I don't have a great holistic view of 20 years at the Wall Street Journal, right? And how the organization has evolved and kind of what some of the challenges are. Um, but I think, I hope that the, for pg the book does that and helps people think a little bit bigger, you know, see the whole picture if it has a you know positive impact on decision making that's great you know i'll, I'll feel that's the highest and best use <laughs> i think um but also it's not just a california story um which i really tried to kind of drive home at the end i i hope that every utility is, is trying to think differently uh as a result and there are real challenges in this space in balancing public and private interests. The vast majority of our electricity is supplied by investor-owned utilities. And so um, I hope that there are lessons that, that every utility can, can take away as they, as they try to figure out you know, how to effectively deliver power in a new climate.
0: Last question for you. We call this podcast With Great Power, which is a nod to the power industry. Uh, it's also a Spider-Man quote. With great power comes great responsibility. What superpower do you bring to the energy transition?
1: <laughs> At risk of having a boring answer, does, does the power of explanation count? I feel like this is just, it's not a space that people understand very well. And I'm I'm really trying to, trying to be of help there.
0: Explaining the complex definitely qualifies. (laughs) Well, Catherine, thank you so much. Uh, California Burning is required reading from my team now, and I think anybody in this space should absolutely read it. So thank you for for writing the book and for taking time with us uh, today.
1: Thanks very much. I really enjoyed the conversation.
0: Catherine Blunt is a reporter with The Wall Street Journal and author of the book, California Burning, The Fall of Pacific Gas and Electric and What It Means for America's Power Grid. With Great Power is produced by GridX in partnership with PostGrid Media. Delivering on our clean energy future is complex. GridX exists to simplify that journey. GridX is the enterprise rate platform that modern utilities rely on to usher in our clean energy future. We design and implement emerging rate structures, and we increase consumer investment in clean energy, all while managing the complex billing needs of a distributed grid. Our production team includes Aaron Hardick, Stephen Lacey, Dalvin Alboaji, and Camille Stennis, all from Postscript Media. The original theme song and mixing came from Sean Marquand. The GridX production team includes Jenny Barber and me, Brad Langley. If this show is providing value for you, and we really hope it is, please help us spread the word. You can rate or review us at Apple and Spotify, or you can share a link with a friend, colleague, or the energy nerd in your life. Thanks for listening. I'm Brad Langley.